Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was a week of waiting, waiting to find out whether the coronavirus is finally on its way out, waiting for economic numbers that we knew were bad and would only get worse. But it was also a week of hope, as we saw hospitalizations, at least in some places, start to go down. And also we came to understand just how much the U.S. government is helping us, and not just the U.S. government, but the G20 finance ministers trying to extend a helping hand to countries around the world. And so we start with that help. Part of it given by Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan, whom we talked with and asked him whether his view about the U.S. economy has changed in the last two weeks. Uh, I think it's basically, uh, my view is basically the same as it was two weeks ago. I think we're going to have a substantial contraction in the second quarter. Um, And we've said publicly annualized as much as 25 to 30 percent. But again, that's annualized, so multiply by four. We think we'll start growing again in the third quarter. And we will continue to grow into the fourth quarter. I probably would say today that peak unemployment may be closer to the mid to high teens, so maybe a little higher than I'd said before. And we still believe that we'll end the year with an unemployment rate something like 8 or 9 or 10 percent, uh, but in that range. And the challenge going into 2021 will be to work that unemployment rate down. So there seems to be a range of views among uh, Fed presidents as well as the board, which is why you have multiple people. So you have different views and they're expressed. But if you take Mr. Buller on the one hand saying it's going to be a sharp V and you have Mary Daly now saying, boy, this could really drag into next year in a recession. Where do you put yourself on that spectrum? Here's the worry. Here's the challenge. Uh, Going into this situation, 
we had sluggish manufacturing, sluggish business fixed investment. Uh, obviously, a lot of it had to do with uh, with weak global trade. But the one thing we had going for us as an economy is we had a very strong U.S. consumer. We had a low unemployment rate. Household balance sheets were in reasonably good shape. And that was 70% of the economy. The challenge is, as we come out of this later this year, uh, and with a, if, an, if, if the unemployment rate really is 8 to 10%, you're going to have a weakened consumer who's going to, you would think, save more, be more careful, be a little bit more reluctant to spend. And that's going to be a headwind for the economy. And it may take a while, and I mean into 2021, for the consumer to get his or her footing back. And I think that'll be dependent on how quickly we can run down this uh, unemployment rate to, to lower levels. So do I, do I think it's going to be a V? I think the, the consumer situation makes me think that we'll have a recovery, and it'll be a solid recovery in the second half of the year from the levels we're at. We're still going to have a 4 to 5% contraction for the year. Uh, but then the question will be, what's the pace of growth and what's the state of the U.S. consumer? Those, those are the questions, and that's, that's the issue I'm most worried about. And the psychology of the U.S. consumer, it strikes me, is not simply being somewhat more conservative because they got burned in a downturn, but also being concerned about their personal safety. How willing are people going to be to go back out, even when they're allowed to do it, to go to restaurants, to go out and spend, to really participate in the economy? Will there be some reluctance just because of personal safety concerns? Yeah, so there's, there's three levels of issue with the consumer. One is personal safety, as you mentioned. This is why testing ubiquity of testing is so critical. If you had widespread testing at scale, I think that would do a lot to give consumers confidence to go into the workplace, to go out to restaurants, to go into other public gatherings, but that's very much dependent on how available is rapid testing. The, 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 the other two issues are job insecurity. Uh, you know, I just saw a survey from the New York Fed that said something like 70% of all workers are worried about their jobs, about losing their jobs. So there's, there's that insecurity. And then the, the last issue is just what's happened to the consumer financially. Uh, and particularly that segment of the population, which is sizable, that doesn't have much savings and lives from paycheck to paycheck. And, uh, and this is going to make it even, make it so they're even more cautious. So those are, those are the three big issues that affect the consumer. As we look at the, the models that you all run at the Fed, is it likely this pandemic will actually affect the potential growth for the United States? I mean, I think before it probably was probably around 2% more or less. Does this take that number down somewhat going out into the out years? Yeah, it may. And that here's the, so we'll have, a, we'll have some snapback growth in 2021. We'll, we'll grow faster than potential next year. We'll grow at a higher rate. If potential is 2%, we're gonna, we think we're going to grow a lot faster than 2% because we're making up for uh, what happened this year. Uh, but if you get, after you get into the future, there's two things that drive potential growth. One is growth in the workforce, and the second is growth in productivity. And the, the, the concern I'd have is you have a number of people that, have, that are, that are going to lose their jobs and are going to have to find new jobs. Some of them who are older, I, I, it's possible, will decide to retire, i.e. just withdraw from the workforce. Others will need to get retrained. Some will have a, find it hard to find other jobs. So workforce growth, as we're, as we're running down the unemployment rate, you would expect a good rate of workforce growth. As we run that down, though, um, 
we had a workforce growth issue coming into this because we're aging. Demographics were such we already we already had an, a, a workforce growth challenge, and um, and we're going to have to relook at that. And that means job training. It also means revisiting a sensitive subject: immigration, appropriate immigration, ways to grow the workforce. That was Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed. Coming up on Wall Street Week, we talk oil with our contributor Afsane Beshlos of Rock Creek Group. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It was another week of bad numbers, retail sales numbers, industrial output numbers, and those jobless claims as millions more Americans are left unemployed. We talked with Wall Street Week contributor Afsane Beshloss of the Rock Creek Group, and we asked her whether we could be headed for a jobless recovery. The numbers were more um, pessimistic than the market expected today. It's interesting that um, the market itself has not reacted as negatively to those numbers so far as we would have expected. But the interesting thing about the numbers uh, that we saw is that um, they do not really cover, they do not show the negativity of many CEOs and CFOs that we've been talking to and polling. And if you talk to a lot of um, CFOs right now, what they're seeing is that even if we come back at the end of, uh, Q, um, of Q2 or um, have a relatively more positive outcome, we still will have less employment coming out of this than people expect. So I have seen numbers that are up to 10 to 30 percent less employees when we stabilize. So that will have a very big impact on the longer term markets, but also the economy. Are we looking at the possibility of a somewhat jobless recovery then, Afsane? Well, it may not be jobless, but it will be at a lower level of employment than I think most people expect. What we're seeing is both the CFOs of the largest companies not seeing employment come back to quite where it was after this crisis, but also, as we've seen with the PPP and the programs for the smaller businesses, those businesses are finding that it has been very difficult to actually get access to the PPPs, which have now been all fully allocated. And unless we get another batch of it, it's not going to be very helpful. Plus, it seems like the market is talking about a lot of bigger firms having had better access to the PPPs than the true moms and pops or the smaller enterprises. So again, from an employment point, it's not clear either for the larger companies or the smaller companies that were um, being uh, being um, uh, hoping to get um, access to the PPPs that they their their um, employment numbers will come up as we expected. The other thing that I think is worth looking at is that, uh, for example, in China, what the government has done is actually just push out cash through Alipay to every. Chinese person or most Chinese people. So you get a cash uh, account on your Alipay and you can buy goods with it. You actually have to exit your home. You can't order online. You have to go out and they're trying to get people to normalize behavior, to go out on the streets to buy a cup of coffee, to get a meal uh, and maybe even go to the movies or whatever. But uh, we don't really have that. We're not really accessing the end consumer through the programs we've got in the U.S. 
Afsana, you know a lot about oil and energy. That's where you started out as an expert in that area. Uh, what about this report that the government may actually pay oil producers to keep their oil on the ground, sort of have the strategic petroleum reserve reside in the ground? Does that make sense? You know, um, you, uh, it's, it's cheaper to do that sometimes than storage, especially we're running out of storage uh, space in the U.S., but also outside the U.S. So I think... You know, if you assume that energy is um, um, oil and gas are are um, are not renewable, in fact, it means that if you keep your stock and its value goes up over a very long time, it may not be exactly the most stupid program to have. It's not exactly a common um, common um, uh, common plan that the DOE has had in the past. Most of the time, I think we have. Uh, expected that our storage spaces would be available and be able to um, to to do the same thing as we're talking about. Also, because all the tankers that are out uh, on the ocean are also f getting full, and most likely by sometime in April or May they will be full. We might have to stop producing, in which case there will have to be some sort of program if we want to support the industry domestically. Whether this is the way to do it or another way um, might be to help the companies with their credit programs and things like that might be more sensible. Uh, you mentioned the possibility of the employment situation not coming fully back. And you look at the oil industry, are we looking at the possibility of some long-term, even maybe permanent changes in the structure of the industry? For example, uh, in the shale oil producers down in the oil patch, they are really hurting. I'm not sure they'll fully come back. You're absolutely right, David. On the other hand, I think what we're seeing, which is very surprising, some of the numbers we've been seeing this week, in fact, is that renewable energy now has reached about 20, just over 20% of our total power grid in the U.S. And, in fact, uh, the Lone Star State, Texas, uh, is a hub of not just oil and gas, the way we think about it, but they have been building a quarter of all new uh, solar capacity that has been installed in the U.S., which is which may come as a surprise to most people who think of Texas just as an oil and gas economy. So on the one hand, you see that employment uh, in one part of the energy sector is going down, but the employment potential for renewable energy might be going up at the same time. And the question is, will the renewables survive and actually thrive as um, energy prices stay lower. Uh, in a world in which we have much more renewable energy and less of the fossil fuels, does that require as much employment? Because we can see, for example, in the auto industry, electric vehicles don't require the same number of workers as internal combustion engines. It might be that, you know, the, the cars themselves don't, but, uh, or they're, you know, manufactured differently. But at the same time, installing capacity, you know, let's say solar on top of your house or in industries, it still is relatively, um, it, it does need labor, a different kind of labor, maybe trained in a different way. All the parts and all the services that you need for renewables also, or clean water or anything climate related also, will generate a lot of employment. In fact, as we speak, I would dare to say that the services part related to renewables is experiencing a, a problem with getting all the access to good labor and experienced labor because we don't have that level of labor experience in uh, services part of renewables and water and things like that. So there is a mismatch there, and if we can get our training programs up 
uh, we might be able to help some of these unemployment problems that we're seeing in the other parts of the energy sector. And I think I should also mention that in emerging markets, you're seeing the opposite trend because a lot of them are energy importers. So just like in the U.S. will become a um, very, very strong energy uh, producer, in a lot of countries that are energy importers, they will have the opposite experience in the sense that as their economies start coming up, they will benefit actually from these level of, um, of low energy prices, and that will in effect help their unemployment problems in the longer run. That was Wall Street Week contributor Afsane Beshloss. Coming up on Wall Street Week, we stay with the international response to the crisis and talk with the IMF's former chief economist about what the G20 did this week to help countries less fortunate. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. G20 finance ministers agreed this week to suspend debt repayment by some of the poorest nations around the world. We talked with the former chief economist for the IMF, now a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, Maury Upsfeld, about why this is what was needed. Well, it's certainly a great, uh, a great help in, uh, in the situation. Um, you know, uh, these uh, the poorer countries are going to be facing an unprecedented uh, health crisis, and um, having to deal with international debt repayments uh, at the same time uh, uh, when there are such great uh, expenditure needs and uh, resource needs, and their economies are uh, in trouble would 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 really be an, an undue burden on them. So. Uh, you know, I think any any sort of uh, relief they can get during this crisis period is welcome. So you perfectly anticipated my question was, it's not enough to say you can keep the cash for the time being, you don't have to pay your debts, but they're going to need cash as well, infused. And as I understand it, there is a proposal, is there not, for a special drawing rights uh, issuance? And the report, actually, actually, Mr. Le Maire over in France, was that the United States was resisting that. Is that consistent with what you've heard? Well, there, you know, there there. there we at Peterson have made a proposal. Others have proposed this. You know, it's a it's a fairly low cost way to uh, to uh, you know greatly improve the uh, the uh, um, liquidity of, of of these poorer countries at a time of crisis. And uh, 
you know, there, there, there have over the years been many, many criticisms of special drawing rights, most of which don't, don't hold much water. So, um, we think it's a step that would be pretty, pretty easy to take. And, uh, you know, it would give these countries some unconditional resources that would have a high value to them in this crisis. At the same time, the developed countries are struggling mightily as well. Uh, is the G20 doing what it can, or are there things it should be doing to try to really get the entire global economy coming back, including the developed countries? Well, the, the, the stabilization efforts that the, the G20 countries are taking for their own economies uh, you know, will certainly benefit uh, and spill over to uh, to the um, uh, emerging and developing economies. So that's definitely a good a good thing. But uh, there's certainly much more that that could be done. And uh, uh, you know some of the some of these issues are in the in the realm of uh, general financial support. But a lot of these issues are in the realm of pure um, pure public health policy. Um, uh, the the um, uh, international response to the uh, to the virus has uh, has not been well coordinated, and as you said, countries have, have basically, you know, looked looked at their own needs and not really um, acted as if this is a you know a global a global threat that has to be controlled globally. And uh, you know, you see this in um, uh, the export restrictions on medical equipment that uh, a number of countries have put in place, which are not only harmful to others, but are ultimately self-defeating given global supply chains for these equipment. Uh, you see this in the way um, uh, you know, the United States has attacked the World Health Organization, which is exactly the wrong thing to be doing in the midst of a global pandemic. Where should we look for leadership right now? Uh, historically, people have looked to the United States in a global crisis such as this. The United States is consumed, in fairness, with fighting its own version of the coronavirus. But if it's not the United States, where will leadership come from? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not clear. I mean, over the last three years of the uh, Trump administration, the, uh, the U.S. has, uh, uh, you know, mounted a, a concerted um, uh, effort, it seems, to, uh, to weaken international governance rather than to pursue its uh, more traditional leadership role in the global economy. So there is a, there is a, a big hole there. And, uh, you know, I expect that um, in, in terms of supporting the WHO, for example, Europe will step up, China will step up. But um, uh, this, is, this is far from an ideal, an ideal situation. And, uh, you know, it's clear that the U.S., rather than providing leadership is, 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 is addressing its own internal, uh, you know, political, political conflicts. Now, with, 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 with fairness, um, it's not only the U.S. that has, um, has uh, 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 prioritized domestic concerns. Um, you know, I think uh, if you look at China, their initial response to the uh, crisis uh, in terms of uh, Transparency with the global community leaves much to be desired, and that that was also driven to a large extent by internal politics. So the U.S. isn't isn't completely unique, but you know in the past it has been able to largely rise above uh, domestic politics in the interest of its global leadership and global security, where there was a bipartisan consensus. And that now seems to be uh, frayed, to say the least. That was Maury Upsfeld of the Peterson Institute and the University of California, Berkeley. 
Coming up on Wall Street Week, protecting the most vulnerable among us from exploitation during this crisis. From Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey, this is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. We like to think that a crisis like the one we're in brings out the best in people, and there are plenty of examples of that. But unfortunately, there are also those who seek to take advantage. We talked with Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey about what she's seeing in her Commonwealth. Well, you know, a few things that we're seeing. One, you see people out there on the Internet, um, Instagram, Facebook, they're marketing coronavirus vaccines, treatments. All of these are scams. And so in response, we go after them and quickly try to shut them down. Um, We also see people who are setting up these charities where they pretend to be asking for support to support coronavirus victims. And again, they're scams. And so we're just encouraging the public to really do their homework before you ever um, give money like that to to what you think is a charity. We've seen a lot of, um, of lately, a lot of people reaching out uh, via phone call or on the Internet promising small businesses disaster relief and, you know, help pretending to help them with their application for that federal money, uh, which people are so desperate for. And so we've been really clear with the public, only go through the public sites to apply for and obtain um, that relief. Um, but it really runs the gamut. I mean, recently there was a woman named uh, Suzanne, um, she called herself, who was calling around offering to help people with their student loans uh, for a fee. So we're monitoring this. We're encouraging people to report these scams to our office and we're taking action as we see it. So, so do you have something like a hotline, uh, Attorney General? We you, do. You, in Massachusetts, we have a hotline set call? up, and we also have a way for people to file directly online or through social media with our office. So we've got those, those lines fully staffed up. We had to, to fight off unlawful debt collection, price gouging, you know, that began a few weeks ago, and similarly for these types of scams. If you discover these, what can you do about them? Your court system's closed down, isn't it? Can you take people into court? Well, it it really ranges. Some of this stuff is coming from overseas, so it's harder to chase. But, I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of of tracking down who owns the site, uh, calling them, sending cease and desist letters. We've had success doing that. We also make sure that we warn the public immediately um, so that they're on the lookout for these kinds of unlawful solicitations. Look forward uh, to a more hopeful time, for example, when we get a treatment or we get a vaccine. Uh, how will we make sure that people can afford it? Because unfortunately, the wealthy have the first access to these things. And yet a lot of people, as I said, who have been most badly affected have not been the wealthy at all in most communities. So true. Um, and not only um, are they having trouble accessing health care, I mean, our, our whole health care system is so strained right now. And, and you see the, the holes and the failings there. But, you know, remember, a lot of these folks are frontline workers, um, but a lot of these folks, too, uh, have been laid off. They've lost their jobs. And so we're going to need a whole uh, safety net and, and a whole lot of uh, funding to, to support them and to, uh, to help them through this time. And so, you know, this isn't a weeks or months long endeavor. This really is going to take us, um, I think, years to, to recover from, to rebuild from. But, you know, my hope is that we rebuild in ways that are more equitable, that deal with some of the underlying disparities that you know, result today in in Black and Latino populations disproportionately being uh, affected, uh, sickened and killed uh, by the coronavirus. So we've got a lot of work to do, 
Um, but with this devastation comes a lot of opportunity to rebuild in a more positive direction, I think. Turn to a different issue, because up in Massachusetts, uh, again, your governor, Charlie Baker, announced this tracking and tracing pattern with Partners in Health, really to try to uh, isolate and identify the people who, are, who have the virus and might spread the virus. Does that raise issues for you in terms of privacy? Because we now see Amazon and Google, for example, are saying they're going to have an app up that will tell us who we've been in contact with. Do we have to consider that balance, or is this a bad enough crisis we say, look, we need to worry about saving people's lives. We'll get to the privacy later on. Well, I think it is a matter of public health right now. That is the priority. That that said, there is a way to do it to account for people's privacy. I think you need strong, uh, this has to be government-led um, so that the right protections are made in place. But certainly whatever we can harness from the private sector, we should be looking to harness. And the fact of the matter is uh, we're not going to see the economy open, as many people are clamoring for, until and unless we have measures in place to uh, do that contact tracing, to uh, test to see who has the antibody, um, and may be able to, to return to work to see who's had the virus, right, um, and, and who's come out of it. And ultimately, we do, you know, we do need to get to a vaccine. So I think people need to be patient. It's a terrible situation, I know, for, uh, for, for everybody. Um, and, you know, but the fact of the matter is, until and unless we have these measures in place, we're not going to be able to um, open, open things back up. And uh, we've got to get that right, and we've got to put public health as the priority ahead of everything. That was Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy. The world normally turns to the United States in times of global crises, but is the United States up to the task this time? Samantha Power spearheaded U.S. efforts to fight Ebola when she was U.N. ambassador, something she writes about in her memoir, Education of an Idealist. We talked with Ambassador Power about President Trump's decision this week to stop funding the World Health Organization. Well, it's an extremely ill-advised move, and it has far more to do with Trump's domestic politics, I think, and his dipping poll ratings in terms of his handling of the crisis uh, than it does the WHO and any desire to strengthen the global health response. Um, three quarters of U.S. funding in terms of assessed and voluntary contributions goes to such tasks as fighting polio, measles, <laughs> tuberculosis. And so what he's eating into is steady state funding, the funding that the United States has been giving uh, for many years. Uh, the United States has made no major new announcements about how it's really going to respond uh, to the pandemic and how it's going to use the WHO and other international agencies uh, to avert a humanitarian catastrophe in the developing world and a catastrophe uh, that, of course, will blow back to the United States because of our links through trade, through global supply tra- chains, through family ties and so forth, uh, to even remote uh, parts of this earth. Um, so it's, it's I think, more of an act of spite and diversion than anything. That said, WHO has not um, performed, I think, optimally. I mean, there was too much deference uh, to China at the beginning. I think that also speaks to the absence of U.S. leadership within the organization, the fact that China has been able to leverage a very modest contribution to the WHO uh, speaks, I think, uh, to the U.S. retreat uh, from organizations like that. Um, but the WHO needs to go back and look when, when the time is right and when it's not uh, trying now uh, to prevent millions from dying, maybe even, you know, the, at the risk of billions being being uh, infected. I mean, there's 3 billion people in the world, David, 
who can't uh, wash their their hands at home, who don't have running water, clean running water to do so. And so with all of these people at risk, right now the WHO is working on trying to ensure that governments in the developing world who don't have the kinds of cushions that we have, and we've seen our challenges uh, managing our response, uh, but who don't have stimulus packages or $2 trillion bailouts coming, impoverished communities, vulnerable communities, refugees, the WHO is out there and trying to offer technical advice uh, as to how those communities can withstand what is about to hit them. And this will just mean that the WHO is now instead scrambling to figure out how it fills uh, the gap uh, that, that Trump is leaving, but also how it mobilizes the new funds it needs to really ramp up those efforts. And, Mr. Meyer, you make a very important point. You talked about being able to wash your hands, basic hygiene. You wrote in the New York Times recently about this great disparity, not just in the ratio of doctors to populace, but also, as you say, a lot of people around the world can't even wash their hands. So as much as we struggle with this crisis here in the United States, how much worse is it going to be in a lot of the lower-income countries? It's going to be devastating, I think, on both axes uh, that we're experiencing, right? First, in terms of the, the lethality and the contagiousness of the epidemic itself, uh, because of close uh, overcrowding and the close quarters in which people in poor communities often live, the ability to practice the kind of social distancing that we are managing, if we're lucky, uh, in, in our some of our neighborhoods in the United States, I mean, that, that ability is not there. And so when one individual uh, brings the virus home, it's likely not only to infect whole families, but um, potentially whole neighborhoods, um, or at least whole city, city blocks or slum blocks. Um, so if you think about refugee camps in Idlib or in southern Turkey, for that matter, if you think about the Rohingya refugee camps in Bangladesh, but even if you think of the favelas in Brazil or the slums um, of informal settlements in South Africa or in India, I mean, it is just going to race uh, through those communities. And so, and then part of that health uh, concern and, and the sort of ravaging of the virus concern is that the health facilities to manage the spread, to get people in early, to hydrate them, uh, you know, to put them on ventilators. I mean, these, these communities don't have ventilators. If we, if we had trouble, you know, getting masks uh, and PPE for our health workers, you can imagine what a refugee camp is going to be experiencing. So that's in the health domain what the virus does and how much more contagious and more deadly it can be because of the absence of proper health care. Then you combine that, David, with the economic toll, and we're experiencing that here. That's why so many Americans need desperately the $1,200 checks, uh, because they don't have another source of income having been laid off. They have their families to feed. They have insulin that they have to buy for their diabetic children. I mean, that's in a developed country like this one, and we have had the stimulus package passed, and maybe there'll be more to follow. Uh, when that economic livelihood is taken away for families that are living hand-to-mouth in those slums or uh, who are dependent on international aid that has now dried up because it's being diverted to domestic response, you can imagine even the risk not only of malnutrition but of outright starvation. That was former U.N. Ambassador Samantha Power. That does it for Wall Street Week this week. I'm David Weston. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.